Good morning. I'll just say a little side note. As a worship leader for a long, long time, um, I can tell you there's a difference in singing a song, performing a song, and worshiping from your heart. And I'm thankful that we have a worship pastor um, who leads us that way from his heart. Aren't you? We love you, Daryl. Thank you, brother, for leading from your life and from your heart and the authenticity of who you are in Jesus. And I'm thankful for it, that he's my friend and he gets to lead us in a lifestyle of worship, not just a song of one. Amen? Good morning. So glad to be with you this morning at the, at the campus of South City Church. If you're with us and you're new to us, we're so glad you're here. Thanks for being here. We hope that you feel like a part of our family. Hope that you enjoy being with us today, and I hope that we will love on you uh, in such a way that makes you feel welcome. Last week, we, we've been in the series in, in the Gospel of Mark, and last week we talked about two separate stories uh, that dealt with this day called Sabbath. This day in, in uh, the Jewish culture in, in, in Jerusalem and Israel, throughout Israel, had become the day where the Pharisees kind of used it against the people. Uh, they, they used it as sort of the, the focal point of their control and religious abuse over Israel and over uh, the people. And they created all these man-made rules and traditions. In fact, the Talmud, which is kind of the main rule book of man-made traditions for the Jewish faith, uh, has 24 chapters of what to do and what not to do on Sabbath alone. It had become this crushing weight of guilt and you, it, it lost all meaning that God had intended for Sabbath. The very word Sabbath means to rest and it had lost all uh, aspects of rest and it was all about duty and obligation, right and wrong and, and control. And so even the whole nation, especially the leaders, had really lost this uh, thing that God intended to be a blessing to his people, not a burden. Today we're going to see that uh, there's some pressure in ministry, and Jesus shows us that, and I think there's some things we can glean as disciples, also as we see him appoint the 12 disciples in the book of Mark. If you look over with me at chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to get started this morning. If you have your Bibles, John, uh, Mark 3, verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew his disciples, withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
That's the text we're going to dig into this morning. Would you pray with me that God would open our hearts to his word? Father, we love you. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that there is nothing more powerful in all the world than the word of God. Lord, I pray that as we, as we look at these few verses that you would help us to see your truth, to understand what you intended to speak uh, to these believers in Rome uh, through the gospel of Mark. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand what you would speak to us today, that we would apply it to our lives, that your spirit would lead us to all truth. And God, my prayer is that you'd help me to stay out of your way and what you want to do in us today. And Spirit of God, that you would minister to us. Give us the courage to be obedient to your word. Give us the courage, Lord, to dig deeper in knowing you and making you known. May we learn today. May it change us as a result. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, and, and we've seen several different things. I'm sure you're noticing these different patterns in the life of Jesus. Mark has mentioned these different things. He's, he's preaching continually. He's healing people continually. He's casting out demons continually. Right? He's withdrawing from the crowds continually. He's creating these patterns, and I think it's good even for us to watch the patterns, have them in our own lives, but also we see some, some things uh, for health of ministry in life that we see in Jesus in this story today that I want us to look at. The first thing you see in this text is we see that Jesus withdraws again, right? You see that? That's what it says. Jesus, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. This is the fourth time in the book of Mark that Jesus purposefully gets away. He purposefully leaves family, he leaves the crowd, and he's going to spend time with the Father. He's going to, to spend time praying, just being alone with the Father, except this time's a little different, right? He's not alone. He takes the disciples with him. And so what is he doing? He's modeling a life of quietness. He's modeling intentional prayer and solitude. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, this needs to be a part of your life. You need to have a regular routine, a regular pattern of stop, you know, pulling away from the crowd, from your family, from vacation, from work, from the demands of life, and just stopping, listening, solitude, quiet, prayer. This ought to be a rhythm in our life as well. Is it a priority for you? If it's not, then begin today just stopping, going outside, spending a few minutes with the Father. You will not believe what it does for your soul. When I was watching this and taking a look at this, I couldn't help but think about Paul when he made the comment to Timothy. We call this sort of the multiplication verse for leaders, 2 Timothy 2.2. And this is how you always remember it, 2 Timothy 2.2, right? All these twos. And it says this, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see the multiplication? This is what Jesus is doing. You've seen me pull away. You've seen me withdraw to go and spend time praying. That's what you need to do. And as you do it, you also need to teach your children to do this and teach your families and, and teach your friends. And this is something, this is a modeling style of life. When I was a kid and I grew up in a youth group, I remember we would go to, you know, on a retreat or something. And at the retreat, there would be a section, maybe after breakfast, where they'd say, okay, everybody, grab your Bibles, maybe a journal, go find a spot out on camp. 
and we want you to spend the next 30 or 45 minutes with the Lord. And as a young person who didn't regularly spend time with God, who didn't regularly read his Bible, who didn't regularly journal in a journal, it was kind of an unsettling thing to do. Can I just be honest with you? So everybody's spread around the camp. You can see kids. What's he doing? I bet he's just drawing. Oh, he's laughing. What's going? You know, you're looking at everybody else. But at some point, I remember, I remember in these different moments kind of this forced modeling where our leaders were going, this is what we do when we spend time with Jesus. And you're forced to just stop. And at some point when you settle in and the awkwardness of just being alone and being quiet, you go, okay, I, I guess I'll read something. And you read and then you, you pray and you, you, you're intentionally spending time with God. They were helping us model a life in Christ. That's why I love our youth leaders and the people who volunteer with our student ministry and our children. We are modeling a life in Christ. This is what we do when we know Jesus. We spend time with him, and this is exactly what Jesus was doing. The second thing I noticed about what Jesus was doing, I want to mention three things specifically this morning, and the first is this. Jesus creates boundaries. He creates a boundary here, right? There's, there's a, a, a situation where you sense some awareness with Jesus in his life that his greatest need, and I see two boundaries at the very beginning. Jesus understands his greatest need in life is to be with the Father. Your greatest need in life is to be with the Father. So the boundary is, I'm not going to just hang out with everybody. I'm going to pull away. I'm going to go and be alone. I'm going to go and model prayer. Maybe in that moment, Jesus withdrew with them and said, all right, guys, separate for a little while. Let's just spend time with the Father. I don't know. But he creates the first boundary of prayer, intentional prayer. The second uh, boundary that I see is that Jesus is recognizing, it doesn't take long, that there are so many people pressing against Jesus and wanting to be healed that he creates a boundary. In fact, he creates a getaway plan. Look at this. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd, he says it again, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples, watch this, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Mark uses this phrase, great crowd, twice, back to back. There's clearly so many people, Mark is trying to emphasize this. We're talking about thousands of people. Try to, try to imagine thousands of people, maybe not even thousands, maybe tens of thousands. And they're coming from all over Israel. All over Israel. I think we have a map this morning. I want to just give you a sense, if we can see it. So down here in the lower part, you see Judea and uh, uh, Idumea, and just above Judea, which is in Judea, is Jerusalem, right? People are coming as far south as Idumea. They're coming from as far north as Sidon, which is north of the very top of the map, doesn't show Sidon. That's Tyre, and above Tyre is Sidon. People are coming from all the way across the Jordan River into this area called Decapolis, which means ten cities. Also, there's a, there's a point where Mark is making a, a, a description here about diversity, because Jerusalem and some of those areas, th those were Jewish areas, but through Idumea, Decapolis, Tyre, Sidon, those are uh, areas of Gentiles. 
So these aren't just Jews that are coming to be healed of Jesus. These are Gentiles. They're coming from literally over 100 miles away. And I don't know how much you walk on your daily walk. Maybe your eye watch says, get up and move. You probably don't go 100 miles, right? These people were coming 100, 100 miles to be healed. And I would say this, if you knew somebody was 100 miles from you right now and you had some need in your life or a need in your child or your family to be healed, would you walk it? Yeah. You'd be like, let's go. We're starting right now. We're going to get to Jesus. People were coming from all over, and they were pressing against him. Jesus had a, had a concern of a crushing weight. I, when I was a kid, I went to concerts. I loved music and, and grew up going to concerts. My first concert was with my sister. We went to go see Rick Springfield. And uh, I'm thankful for that concert. I remember part of it because I, I loved Rick Springfield. I don't think I loved Rick as much as my sister did. But... Um, it was a great concert, but I went with my brother, David, with a lot of concerts, and I remember in the concerts, at some of these, because we bought the cheap seats in the very middle, you know, the general admission, you get in there with everybody else and you mix it up, and it's frightening, if I'm being honest with you, because you're standing like this and people are touching you. Their bodies are touching your body. It's not a fun thing, especially for somebody that doesn't like a lot of crowds, and when they move, you move. Right? It's like, oh, okay, we're, okay, we're going this way. All right, we're leaning this way. It's not a good feeling. This is the idea. If you've ever been in that situation where you feel uncomfortable with so many people, this is a crushing weight. This is not hyperbole for Jesus. He's saying, these people could crush me, and so I want to create a getaway plan. Let's create something, a boundary, if you will. And so he tells the disciples, even before they withdraw, hey, today you're going to need to get a boat. You're going to need to get that boat down close to this area. That's where we'll be. We may need that boat. So people just wanted to touch him. And if you can imagine you had someone in your family who needed to be healed, and you've walked from 100 miles away, you're not going to take no for an answer. Because the Bible tells us that even people who just touch Jesus could be healed. I mean, just touching his garment. You know, we have the story of the, man, the woman with uh, the issue of blood. She just touched his garment. Sometimes you think, well, maybe that was just an issue of her, her faith and if she just thought if she could touch his garment. But no, it was known just touching his garment could heal. Look just a little further in Mark, Mark 6, 56. It says, and whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that, he might touch even the, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. People knew that all they had to do was touch Jesus' clothes. And trust me, if you're so desperate to be healed, you will not take no for an answer. This was a concerning thing in the ministry of Jesus. And so he creates this getaway plan, if you will, for safety, for him, for his disciples, for their well-being. And there's a good chance that everybody in the crowd that day didn't get healed. You see that? There's a good chance that that maybe the crushing aspect of this made, made them move on. It's possible. Friends, I guess what I want to say about this aspect of boundaries is that, number one, it's okay to create boundaries in ministry. It's okay to create boundaries for protection in ministry and in life. But for those of us in ministry, this is a hard thing to do because, I mean, this is what God has called us to do, to, to care for people, to love people, 
the Bible talks about um, serving people and, and giving things to them and, and helping and doing, doing these things that are a blessing. And so we want to do that. But, and, and it's easy to feel guilty if you don't do something. Maybe you're going to feel guilty to not do something. But here's the thing. We have to create boundaries so that we can minister and serve later on, right? In fact, if you call me, potentially, sometimes, it's possible that if you call me on a Saturday, I may not get it. I may not get the phone. But you're our shepherd. You love us and you serve us. I sure do. I love you. But God has called me to care for my family and my own rest. And, and if it's an emergency, I most likely will get it. But there are times if you text me at 11 o'clock at night, you might not get a reply. Okay? Because I have boundaries. And our team has boundaries. And we want to serve you well. And we want to serve you beyond today. We want to serve you next week and next month and in 10 years. And the only way to do that is to sometimes set boundaries to care for ourselves and for our families. It's okay to do that sometimes. Ministry can be an exhausting, exhausting thing. We have to have wisdom in how we care for ourselves, our families, with the desire to continue to care for people. You know, I, 32 plus years in ministry, I've seen a lot of brothers and sisters burn out. I mean, people who are just, they're gung-ho for ministry. Let's go, right? Let's, let's do this. And you just want to go, yes, let's do this, but let's, let's have wisdom. Let's have wisdom. Let's make sure we're serving with wisdom. And, and these boundaries help set up that wisdom. And if you don't have it, you can burn out so quick. Because often people don't know how to say no. People don't know how to say, you know what, that's not the best thing for me. I need, I need yes, we serve and we sacrifice. But there has to be a rhythm of care if we want to serve longer than a short period of time in ministry. Also notice this. Jesus, he still doesn't want to be announced by the demons. Verse 11 says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Right? Jesus doesn't want his uh, messianic announcement coming from demons. He didn't want them to, to, to let everybody know who he is. He also doesn't just want to be the traveling magician that heals people. Right? Dun, 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 dun. Come, everybody come to the, the, the traveling magician. That's not who Jesus is. Healing every single person that he can heal. Yes, he does that. As he can, he heals. But he does so with a purpose. To get the message of who he is, the message of Messiah, the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom of God out. The healing, the miracles, casting out demons accompany who he is as Messiah and the message of the gospel. Not just to heal every person. They accompany a message. There's a purpose in them. Next thing I see beside boundaries is that we see Jesus set some barriers for people who truly want to follow and go deeper. Verse 13, it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him. You see, as Jesus and his disciples are withdrawing together, and I'm in my mind, because I've been to the Sea of Galilee, I'm thinking of actual places and actual geography. And it is, it is a like most seas or, or lakes, it's a gradual decline right down to the sea, down to the lake. And so as they're walking, as they're withdrawing, they're walking downhill, 
down to the Sea of Galilee. And a, a crowd, a great crowd of people are joining them. And I couldn't help but notice that the very next verse said that he went up on the mountain. And I thought it's interesting that we see all these great crowds walking down to the sea and then all of a sudden the verse changes and Jesus goes up to the mountain. You know, there's been different seasons of my life when I've been trying to exercise. I've, I've had different seasons where I've been an athlete, I've ran a half marathon, I've ran 5Ks, I've been in shape and out of shape. It's like this all the time with me. And uh, almost every time I go, you know what, I'm going to get in shape again. And I, I want to start running again. One, I'm going to let you in on one of my running secrets, okay. Um, and that is this. When I start working out again, I run downhill. Right? I walk uphill, but then I'll run downhill. It makes me feel like I'm doing more. But it doesn't take as much effort. Right? So I'm going to walk, I'm breathing like a freight train. And I get uphill, but then when it's downhill, I can run. And it doesn't take that much more effort. The thing I kept noticing about this text is there's a lot of people walking downhill to the sea. And guess what? It's beautiful by the sea. It's gorgeous out there. We don't mind a nice leisurely stroll down to the sea. It takes very little effort. And it's beautiful. Let's go as a family. Let's get little Johnny healed. Let's go. Let's walk down. But then the text changes, and we see a a distinct change in geography. Jesus goes up to the mountain. Here's my point, friends. It's easy to go downhill. It's something that doesn't require as much effort is easier. But Jesus climbs a mountain, and climbing a mountain is not easy. Climbing an area that is on top of a mountain, it it requires effort. I told you recently about our trip to Pinnacle Mountain. I felt like I was going to die, right? Like... And that's not a very high mountain. It takes effort. My point being this. What we see Jesus doing is going from the great crowds that are following to be healed to the small group of people who are willing to make an effort to follow him. It takes effort to be a disciple of Jesus. It is not easy. And a climb up a mountain filtered out some people. Can I just tell you? And that's the thing about discipleship. It takes effort. That's the thing about discipleship. See, the people down by the sea, they didn't come to hear what Jesus had to say. They they didn't care. It was about them. Can you just heal us? That's wonderful. That's great. Can we just touch you? It's all about me. And Jesus goes up a mountain, and then he calls these disciples to himself. It takes effort to walk with Jesus, to be truly committed To be a disciple of Jesus that goes deeper in him, that wants to be used by him, it's going to take effort, it's going to take sacrifice, it's going to take commitment, it's going to take endurance. We have to dig in, we have to climb high. There are so many people who label themselves as Christians, and often we just want the easy road. Just reminded in Matthew 7 when Jesus says that there will be people who stand before him and they say, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus says, I never knew you. It's a frightening verse. So the question is, do you truly know Jesus? Because to know Jesus is to be radically transformed, changing you from death 
to life, and then when you're changed to a desire to, to follow and know him more. We see Jesus calling these men, and we're going to get into that in just a minute, but they're going deeper. It's taking more effort. Friends, if you know me, you know I'm a, I, I love people. I love, I, I adore you. This morning I was up early, I was praying for you. And here's, the, here's, here's my heart. I want you to know this Jesus that I know. I want you to know the joy of the mountaintop. I want you to see the beauty of walking in Jesus with all your heart. I long for you to be formed in Jesus. Not just to walk down to the sea and see the show. Not just to walk in this building and see the show. But to walk deeply in an understanding of who he is and a desire to say, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to say no to sin in my life. I want to know your word. I want to be used of you in ministry for the lives of people in mission. That's what I long for you. But friends, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens with effort. It happens with struggle. It happens with intentionality in the same way Jesus said, excuse me, I've got to go away. I can't, I can't hang anymore. I have to go away and spend time with my father. I'm sorry, I can't sleep in anymore. I've got to go and be with my family. I've got to go spend time with the family of God. I'm sorry, I can't go to lunch just yet because I'm learning to be a disciple. I'm going to go to equip and I'm going to learn more to follow Jesus. I, I, can't, I can't just take all my time this week because I've got to make time for my triad. My triad is important to me. And I, listen, I want to just put this little side note in there. I pray that you, you have one. We all need one. We all need a place where we're gathering with two or three other people, learning God's word, going deeper in what it means, and praying for lost people. That's what a triad is. I pray that each of you have one. And if you don't, you'll make time for one. You'll be intentional in one. I pray that each of you would be committed to the family of God. And to be committed to the family of God is more than attending a service. Can I just tell you that? I say it a lot, but I mean it. To be committed to a family of God is to, is to gather with people that you walk life with. That's what our city groups do. And we pray, just as Hayden was saying this morning, we pray for one another. We, we share our struggles with one another. We weep with one another. We do the one another's together. That is the body of Christ together. Is that a priority in your life? Because to follow Jesus, it's not as easy as a leisurely stroll to see the show. It's a climb up a mountain that takes effort and intentionality. And my prayer is that all of us desire to know Jesus more. It's not my heart to give you a guilt trip. Can I, can I say that? The last thing I want to be known, in fact, I, I weep over the idea that somebody will go, oh, here goes another guilt trip. That breaks my heart. That is not my heart. My heart is that you be fully formed in Jesus. That you know the joy of his presence and life with him. And that you know the unbelievable privilege of being used by him to see somebody come to know him. To see somebody grown in their faith because of your relationship with them. That's what your elders long for you to do and to know and to live. On top of just being a, a disciple that goes deeper, to become a disciple who is sent out, <laughs> who's ready to be a missionary, 
who's ready to be ready, instant, in season and out of season, the Bible says for us to be ready. The Bible says be ready to give uh, your reason for the hope that you have within you. Are we ready to have that? Are we ready to do that? Do we know how? Are we equipped? It's not easy to follow Jesus as a disciple. And can I say the church of Jesus, not just this one, the church of Jesus is filled with a lot of people who attend church and there are some disciples who are deeply committed to him. May we be a church filled, this is one of our core values, people who are transformed disciples, truly changed disciples, passionate worshipers, our second core value, that we're engaged in authentic relationships with one another, that we care about our community, that we're on mission together, and that we're creative, and that God uses us for his glory. That's who we want to be at South City. Please don't hear guilt. Hear opportunity to know Jesus more. If it sounds like we're calling you to more commitment, you're right. We're not calling you to less. We're calling you to more. Because we have an incredible opportunity to serve the Lord. To see people come to know him. To see people know the joy that we have. You know, I'm just like you. I have moments of incredible joy and happiness. And I have moments of deep sadness and depression. I do. And in those moments, I preach the gospel to myself. And I say, my only hope is in Jesus. My only hope is in Jesus. And I raise my hands to say, Lord, I surrender my life and the sadness of my life to you. To know that, God, you are king of my life. And I surrender to you. I surrender to what you want to do in your kingdom. However you choose to use this broken person, use me. It takes effort though, friends. It takes effort. I know that in life we often, we want a degree, man. We're going to work hard. We're going to stay up late for that test. We want a promotion. We're going to work hard. We're going to stay late at work. And often, I, and I'm just as guilty as anybody else, we spend hours on social media or in front of the TV but then we don't take opportunities to know Jesus more, to learn more, to go deeper, to be connected to his body. And that's because the American church has failed you. The American church has said for so long, what's important is that you just attend the service. Regardless of whether you change or you surrender your heart or not, that's not the truth. What matters is that you surrender to Jesus. What matters is that you're fully formed in him. That you know him as a disciple. And as a part of knowing and loving him, you love people. And you want to be with him. And you want to be with them. Jesus did amazing things on the mountaintop. Can I remind you? He defeated Satan when he was being tempted. He preached the sermon on the mount. He was transfigured before the three that he was truly investing in deepest. Peter, James, and John on a mountain. He later gives the great commission, and even here in our text today, he calls the 12, which is a very important moment. I'm going to explain why. All on a mountain. Yes, it takes effort. Yes, it will take some more time. Yes, more energy. Yes, more devotion. Oh, but Paul said, to know Christ. I just want to know Christ. May we be moved 
Lord, move us out of our apathy into commitment, into discipleship. Not just interested in a healing by the sea, but hearing Jesus with him moving the great crowds to the great commission. From great crowds to the great commission, that's what we see him do. He says in the text, he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And so the question this morning is, has God called you? And have you come to him? Often God calls and you don't come. (laughs) Sometimes he says, come on, I want you to come down and just pray for a while. Hey, I I want you to come spend time with me this morning instead of that little extra sleep. I get that one all the time. (laughs) And I've got this choice, oh, what am I going to do? Okay, Sometimes God calls and we don't come, but here in the text we see that he calls those whom he desired and they came to him. Look at verse 14. It says, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So this morning what we've seen Jesus do is we've seen him set boundaries, right? to protect himself, to protect those who he's with. We see him create barriers to see who's really with him, who's going to go deeper, who's willing to climb, who's willing to be intentional. And now we see him calling the apostles to belong, to belong with him. See, these men, these 12 men, are going to spend the next three years with Jesus. They're going to be roommates, even though there's not going to be very many rooms. <laughs> All right, they're going to sleep wherever. They're going to cry together. They're going to laugh together. They're going to be together nonstop. Everything Jesus says and does will be witnessed by these men, and that's exactly what Jesus wants. And I love this, this phrase in verse 14. It says, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. You see that first thing? There's three things Mark shows us about these disciples. The first thing is this, that they be with him. Jesus wants a relationship with these men. Guess what he wants with you today? A relationship. He calls you to be with him. To spend time with him. This is also a a, a coming aside. In other words, will you be identified with Jesus? Will you be in the group that is always with Jesus? Oh, that's one of those Jesus people. Is that you? People recognize you as that, or is that a secret for your friends that you know and love Jesus? For people who love Jesus, it's not a secret. It's the truth of our lives. Second thing we see is that he wants them to be a witness for him. Look what it says. They might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. The word there means proclaim. He wants them to be a witness for him. He wants them to share the truth of the gospel with the world. So that's what he would have us do. Would would we share with people who he is, the truth of the gospel? And then the third thing, be representative of Jesus' authority. It says that they will have authority to cast out demons. In another gospel in this story, Matthew 10, it says that uh, Jesus also gave them power to heal. This incredible ability for these 12 men to not only have authority over the spiritual realm to cast out demons, but authority over the physical realm to make people whole and healed. 
Why? For the same reason Jesus cast out demons and made people well, which is to accompany the message of the gospel. As they saw a miracle, they said, who is this? This is Messiah. He's come to bring you life. The working of God through miracles was to help people see Jesus, who he was, the message that he had to proclaim about his kingdom, about the gospel. The number 12 is also not an accident. This is not a coincidence, right? In fact, I think it's, um, it's, it, there's a lot to this. I could spend a whole message on this. I'm just going to take a couple minutes. Jesus is making a point here with the number 12. What he is saying to the religious elite, the Pharisees, you are not the leaders of my people. You think you're the leaders. Man, you've got the garb, you've got the dress, you've got the confidence. You don't have the life. And you don't have the anointing. You don't have the power. Look at the authority these men are going to have to cast out demons that you don't. You're not the leaders of my people. The number 12 represents the 12 tribes of Israel. You think he's making a statement there? Jesus is starting over, friends. Jesus is, is creating a new nation. In fact, if you go deeper into this study about 12, you see that in Luke 22, the Bible says in the, in the new heaven, the new earth, that these 12 apostles will rule the 12 tribes of, of Judah. And Revelation 21 says that their names will be written on the 12 foundations of the new heaven and the new earth. There's a purpose. There's God, Jesus did everything with intentionality. And to say these are going to be the new leaders of my people. Oh, are they the most educated? <laughs> no. Are they, are they leaders now? Are they the best of the best of the leaders of Israel? Oh, no. These are ordinary men. These are uneducated men, unqualified men who love me and will obey me. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, right? A holy what? Nation. Jesus is creating a new nation of his people. It's called the church. And this is the way Paul explains it in Ephesians 2.19. He says... So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's us. That's the church. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is who Jesus is building. This is what Jesus is building. These 12 apostles, this statement to the religious elite, this building of a new nation of God's church. Also, the selection of these men is no small thing. Luke 6 in this story says that Jesus spent all night praying before he made this selection of the, of the disciples. In fact, that's the same thing that Jesus had done with the first four. Remember that? He went to the wilderness and he, he uh, fasted and he prayed. And the next few days, he's making the selection of the first four. So Jesus is not taking lightly the selection of these men. Because he's going to use them greatly, right? They're going to be his witnesses, Acts 1, to Jerusalem, to the ends of the earth. They're going to be the ones sent in great commission, Matthew 28. They're going to be the ones that the Spirit comes in power on in Acts 2. These are going to be the same men 
that later in their lives, many, many years, decades after their time with Jesus, the Spirit is going to remind them of the stories and all the things that they did with Jesus, and they write the gospel. These are going to be the same men that the Spirit says, I'm going to remind you and I'm going to empower you with things lofty, with things to teach my people. This is the New Testament. The Holy Spirit in, inspires and empowers these leaders to write the New Testament. Incredibly important role for these men. It's an important thing for us to look at in this text. Let's look just at very specifically. It may, you may fly by this if you're just reading this, but I want you to know there's, there's meaning for these last couple of minutes. Mark lists these men by name, but he doesn't just list a, a, a list of names. There's a few other elements in this. Look at what it says in verse 16. It says, he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, right? James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. That is, sons of thunder. That's what that means, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, again, he's listing these names, <laughs> And giving some additional information for a purpose. These are not great leaders in Israel. These are ordinary men, unqualified men, untrained men. Seven fishermen, one tax collector who's hated by everybody, and one zealot, or if to put it a little differently, uh, somebody who is, um, he wants to overthrow Rome. He's a freedom fighter, if you will. So just go with me for a minute. Jesus decides to start his church with one guy who works for Rome, and everybody hates him, and another guy who wants to kill Romans and those who work for Rome. That sounds like a good team. Let's do that. Do you think Jesus is trying to say something to us as his church today about diversity, about whether you vote Democrat or Republican? You think Jesus is trying to say something today to his church about unity? about getting together, about working it out, about enduring through problems? Yes. Even in the 12, they were like this. There's a reason these descriptions are given to these men. This list is, is given four different places in the New Testament. The Synoptic Gospels and Acts. Every time it begins with Peter, and I think what they're saying is Peter's the leader of this group. You might even look at the list we have here, and we don't see Andrew connected to his brother. Wouldn't you put brothers together? But the reason a lot of theologians believe they're not is because this is a listing of literally closeness to Jesus. This is a listing of different groups of closeness. And in every one where it's listed, these names, Peter is the first one and Judas Iscariot is the last one. There's one name different in uh, Luke's gospel, and that's the name Thaddeus. He's listed as uh, Judas, son of James. Theologians believe that maybe he wanted to change his name. <laughs> I think I'll go by Thaddeus, right? Instead of Judas, there's a lot of negative feelings around that name. Let, let me go by Thaddeus, right? Makes sense. But look, look, just for a moment here, look with me, and this is so beautiful. Simon. Right? Simon, his name has changed to Peter. 
which means rock, or to Cephas, which means rock. He's wishy-washy. He's inconsistent, not dependable, and yet he becomes the leader and the rock. James and John, one theologian said, you know, I think Jesus names them sons of thunder. There's a reason. We don't really know the reason. Why are they named the sons of thunder? He said maybe they were hotheads. Maybe they were explosive and they liked to fight. And so Jesus knows them before relationship with him and says, well, you guys are sons of thunder. And they keep that name even to this day to be reminded of the change that Jesus can have on their life. Because who is John? John describes himself as the apostle whom Jesus, what? Loved. Who is John but the writer of so much love in his letters in the New Testament? He, that's what he writes about. He's not the same. He's different. God's done a work in his heart. James, son of Alphaeus. This is probably to distinguish from John, John's brother James, but there's also a, 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 an aspect here. Jesus knows their fathers. He knows their family of origin because family matters. Simon the Zealot because Jesus can change anybody's heart. Even an assassin. And of course Judas the betrayer. And he's given this horrible name, the betrayer, so that we never forget what he's done. And of course he's replaced by Matthias in Acts 1. What, what am I trying to say this morning, friends? Real quickly. It's okay to have boundaries. It's okay to protect your family, your, yourself. Yes, we're called to sacrifice. Yes, there's times I pick up somebody and take them somewhere, and it might not be the safest thing, right? If I feel the Lord leading me to do that, I'll do that. But it's okay to have boundaries in our lives so that we can protect ministry for years to come. It's also important that we know following Jesus takes effort. Jesus himself said, in order to follow me, if you want, you want to come after me, okay. Well, deny yourself. Is anybody denying yourself? Is that easy? No. Then he ramps it up. Deny yourself. Take up your death. Your cross. Right? In other words, die to yourself and follow me. It's not easy to follow Jesus. And yet to know him, we have to take an additional step. We have to go further. We have to cross lines Lines of compromise into lines of commitment and depth and sacrifice. He wants to be with us. He wants us to be a witness. He wants us to have authority. Can I remind you this morning, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus has given us authority over the enemy. Let's live like it. Jesus wants to use you. One of the most encouraging things in this text for me is, this list of these men and thinking about if, if my name is on that list as a disciple, what name would he have given me, right? Not sure. But I'm so grateful for the changing power of Jesus. The redeeming power of Jesus. He took the inconsistent hothead of Simon and made him the rock. Took every, the one everyone hated, Matthew, Levi, and he gets him to write one of the Gospels. He took someone with an explosive anger like John and used him to write about love. Takes a violent freedom fighter like Simon the Zealot and teaches him to serve and love and to be unified in a group. 
and he can use your story, your sinfulness background, your brokenness. He uses all of it to bring himself glory. He uses it. He even can use your family of origin. Some of you go, you just don't know my family. Jesus knew their family. He knows your family. And he knows that he can do anything in anyone. And and here's this encouraging thing to me and the last thing I'll say. God uses ordinary men and women. That's you. Trust me, it's me. (laughs) Ordinary men and women for his purposes. Unqualified, uneducated, untrained. He uses ordinary people and I'm so glad that he does because guess who he's calling? You and me, ordinary people, to take the gospel of Jesus to the whole world, to your neighbors, to those you work with, to those you live with, to your friends, and he wants to use you. Will you come up the mountain? Will you take the effort? Will you go deeper? Will you take the opportunities given to you to step a little further into knowing Jesus and making him known? Pray with me this morning. Father, we love you. We glorify you today, God. We thank you that, yes, we are ordinary people, and we are in deep, deep need of your forgiveness and grace. My past is ugly, God, and sinful and broken, and I am a changed man, not because of some effort on my part, but because of the grace and mercy of Jesus alone. Not because I worked harder to be different, but because of Jesus' work on the cross is finished for me. So no matter what anyone watching here today or from anywhere looking today, no matter what you've done, you can follow Jesus and know him as a disciple because of the sheer mercy and grace of God. Do you believe? Have you trusted him? As you've trusted him, go deeper Make choices to follow him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Up the mountain to the places of knowing him more. Lord, you're calling us. May we follow. May we come. May this church of friends and family not be a a, a people of status quo, not be a people of, of shallow surface, but of depth and relationship and obedience and mission for you because of what you've done in us, God. You've changed us. Now use us for your glory in spite of us. From just the great crowds to being on the great commission, God, would you help us to do that? And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.